what sponge guy money money i got money 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 i got Ahoy, mateys, and welcome to I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. I'm your captain, Captain Eric. It's a pleasure to welcome you aboard to another episode. I am hard at work helping out with the edit for the SpongeBob SquarePants movie Rehydrated, premiering this May 1st, 2022. Yes, if you're listening to this on the release or within the days afterwards, this Sunday, on YouTube, I will have in the podcast description or the video description, if you're listening to this on YouTube, I will have a link to the YouTube channel of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie Rehydrated, which first uploaded a video all the way back on January 21st, 2020. Over two years since its conception, we are finally getting the final product. And my involvement of this project came and I'll have a, a full kind of video coming out um, talking about all of this and, and going over my involvement but it started after a video was posted by Veilskibum94 back on April 13th 2020 that video just highlighted the project that it was happening that you can join they were looking for more animators more people to work on the project and I'm not an animator at, at all but I had a Spongebob Squarepants podcast so, yeah, I, I joined the project fairly after that video on April 13th, and that's, you know, it's been two years for me that I have been a part of this project, and let me tell you, we have something really special that's premiering on May 1st. Even if you're listening to this episode after the premiere, by all means, go and look for this video on YouTube, go and watch the movie. Everything from top to bottom has been fan-made. The sound design, the sound effects... The, the voices, the music, everything. Uh, nothing has been copied and pasted from the original movie uh, other than, you know, just concepts and ideas. But my goodness, just going through some of the footage, even just when an animator can take three seconds of this movie and, and show you something absolutely incredible, you can see the pure dedication from SpongeBob fans old and new, all over the place, honoring the life of Steven Hillenburg, honoring his original drawings, the original SpongeBob concepts. I, I see love for SpongeBob and, and Steven Hillenburg in almost every frame of this movie that I've gone through. So, um, yeah, I've, I've gotten to help out a little bit more than just um, hosting the podcast for any of the interviews and whatnot. So I, I've put a lot of my hard work into this. I hope any of you out there get to watch it, get to enjoy it. And um, look, even if you just want to listen to, you know, to the original score and, and the original audio, I believe it can be synced up to the animation and, and you can at least, you know, get to see some of the beautiful work that's been done. But even when it comes to the sound department and the music and the voices, there has been so much love that has been poured into this. I would, I would definitely give it a shot when it premieres. This week's episode has uh, three different titles, which, you know, normally happens with SpongeBob SquarePants specials. Try saying that like five times fast. I'm not going to here because I know I'll fail. Um, normally they have a, a title for the special that they advertise, you know, out and usually even with co-promotions with fast food chains and, and other department stores and in other, you know, online markets and whatnot, they'll have a name for the special, but then the episode within the special has its own name. What's interesting about this is I think this is the first time that there's three different episode titles. So while it's being promoted to the public, it's being promoted as SpongeBob Goes Prehistoric. And within the episode, um, the the they're advertising the episode as SpongeBob BC before comedy. And then the actual SpongeBob episode within it is called UGG. And regardless of all of those semantics, uh, UGG was uh, written by Paul Tibbet, Kent Osborne, Mark O'Hare, Derek Dryman, and Steven Hillenberg with its live-action sequences written by Paul Tibbet, Kent Osborne, and Meriwether Williams. 
Our storyboard artists for UGG are Carson Kugler, Caleb Muner, and William Reese. Our storyboard directors are Paul Tibbet and Ken Osborne. Our animation director is Andrew Overtoom. And our creative director is Derek Dryman. Now, if I'm being completely honest, I like this episode. I, I even love some of the jokes, but overall, I really think it's a step down from a few of the episodes that we've had thus far, at least this this nice string of home runs. And yeah, I, I know, I, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I get it. It actually has nothing to do with the prehistoric humor. I, I get a kick out of that kind of humor. I enjoy the Flintstones. I enjoyed him as a kid. I never at one point in my life grew up and said, you know what, none of that is really funny. I mean, some of it in the Flintstones can get a chuckle out of most people, I think. There, there's a lot of groaners in the Flintstones, but I, I actually like those. I like those kind of corny-esque prehistoric you know, jokes that they would make. And there is nothing against that whatsoever. But the fact that we, you know, a couple months earlier had just gotten SpongeBob's house party. Here's another, you know, two-parter episode, a big special that Nickelodeon advertises at nauseum. So it's it's not just another new episode. It's a big deal. If you're a, a watcher of Nickelodeon, you are seeing commercials for this thing all over the place in the weeks leading up to its premiere. So it's it's just made to be a bigger deal. And when you watch it... It's like, well, it's good. It's funny. There's there's definitely some moments in this episode that are, are massive highlights, and I love the quality of it, especially in the design and, and art department. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the big thing that I will look forward to when you're telling me, hey, we're going to make an entire episode of SpongeBob, uh, but in prehistoric times, I'm going to, like, look at how you're going to design those those backgrounds. How's the sky going to look? The, the back of Bikini Bottom, the the houses, and, and everything really is a knock out of the park. Uh, the, <laughs> the only thing I got to say that it's not even really a knock, but it's just something to point to is just how uh, sophisticated Squag is, uh, our, our stand-in for Squidward as a, as a prehistoric caveman. He is living a life a few steps above your average caveman, but we'll, we'll get into that. We can't have a SpongeBob special without it being hosted by the one, the only, Patchy the Pirate. And this time around, we're not just in Patchy's house, uh, which is usually, you know, his stage, if you will, in presenting these uh, SpongeBob specials. But we are now uh, literally in a soundstage, in a fake cave that is made to look like it's it's supposed to be Patchy's house a hundred million years in the past from the outside, but... Uh, there, there's at least a joke or two made that this is pretty much a soundstage and just made up for Patchy to host his prehistoric episode, which he is hosting as SpongeBob BC before comedy, which is my favorite of the three titles of this episode. I think it's smart enough that it could have been just the main title for all three of them. Honestly, I think Nickelodeon could have gotten away with advertising it as SpongeBob BC. I think people would have would have gotten the joke there if the before comedy part was uh, was intact. Now, maybe they just didn't even want to touch that. I understand it. SpongeBob Goes Prehistoric is very on the nose. It's just going to tell viewers and and people who are you know passing by and maybe seeing an advertisement on a on a bus somewhere of a SpongeBob special and they see it SpongeBob Goes Prehistoric. You don't need to tell them anything more than that title. So, in, in that regard, I understand these Nickelodeon advertisement titles because they they have to advertise to people who they may only get to hear that title for one second. And if they can't get the episode across or the special across, it, it's not going to perk up, you know, someone's ears, which is all in like marketing, you know, 101 going in and, and you have like that elevator pitch. You have that one second of an attention span to, to sell your product and... You know, honestly, thinking about it, it's really funny that um, as we as we go down the titles, each one just gets a, a little bit funnier because we go from SpongeBob Goes Prehistoric, very generic title, to then, you know, Patchy is hosting SpongeBob BC before comedy. That's hilarious. And then we get the actual episode title, uh, UG. That's it. There's nothing else. That alone is is hilarious. Uh, but before the episode starts, Patchy is really excited to show off prehistoric times to the viewer. He he is, you know, it, this whole kind of segment 
really reminded me a little bit of Pee Wee's Playhouse in a way. Um, even though Patchy has hosted these specials before, the fact that it's taken place in his home, and and even though it might be on a set, the the set is less obvious as a as a backdrop. Whereas here, the the cave setting is so clearly a, a fake set, and just is rem- it just reminds me of Pee Wee's Playhouse in some regard. It you know there's not a bunch of goofy stuff on the walls and and knickknacks and characters, but the way it's designed, it like if if Pee Wee was gonna have a cave setup for an episode, it I imagine it would look like this in, in regard, or at least the design of it. Um, uh, well, I mean, it would be way more wacky if it was Pee Wee Herman, but the base design, like if you were just going to do the caves and didn't add any of the extra stuff on it, this would at least be the, the structure that they would build off of for Pee Wee. But for, for Patchy, it's, it's fine as is. I love the touches of the SpongeBob cave paintings. It's the one thing I really remember in all of the advertisements of this episode. And it's just, it's one of those little, you know, adorable touches that kind of completes the entire package for me. I, I can't explain it beyond that, but um, it's it might've been minimal effort. I mean, they're, they're cave drawings. They're supposed to be in a way minimal. And and just everything for me, I, I always got a, a kick out of that and it always made me smile. Um, the uh, issue for Patchy throughout this episode is the fact that he is excited to bring the prehistoric world to viewers. He's excited to show off the SpongeBob cartoon while Potty comes in, who is supposed to be dressed as a pterodactyl. And man, I was mentioning Pee Wee's Playhouse before, but if, if Potty would have came in in his pterodactyl costume, it would have just sent it would have sent those Pee Wee uh, Herman vibes into overdrive. But uh, he comes in instead donning a bunch of like cyborg gear like a jetpack and a Jordy DeForge style visor. Uh he looks really cool. I like his design here, but Potty, you know, for the most part we I imagine and I'm speaking for most viewers here, we enjoy him because he's a bit sassy and he, you know, he's that just that cartoony evilish sidekick for Patchy the Pirate causes him a bit of a headache here and there. And and even though he's caused patchy uh massive amounts of both physical and mental damage over the years he's an enjoyable character but here's the thing Uh, the fact that the spongebob episode in question solely focuses on the prehistoric times and i love patchy i imagine you love patchy he's showing his excitement for something we're interested in what he's interested in and it helps you know, make everything a little bit better. And I honestly can't really agree with Potty in this episode. I, there might be other ones where I can point out moments or, or things he did to Patchy where I'm like, yeah, that wasn't cool. This one felt a little bit like it cut deeper. I don't know. For for him to go through the effort of, of making these sets and, and to host this show and for Potty to just come in and and completely dunk on it throughout the entire time on, on multiple occasions in multiple ways, I know it's a part of the dynamic, but I don't know. I, I wish they found a, a different spin within the prehistoric world that they could have the the Potty and, and Patchy issue throughout the episode. Uh, I'm, I'm not really into this, and maybe that's where my issues come in. You know, I'm, putting, I'm honestly putting that together right now, but... Before we get uh, too deep into this, I want to mention that the the very quick uh, stock footage of cavemen that is used in this episode is from the 1914 film Brute Force. And although I am a bit of a cinephile, I enjoy old movies and, and the history of film, I've never seen the movie, honestly. Uh, but it is a, a short, silent drama film from 1914 directed by D.W. Griffith. And uh, I, I can't tell you to go and search that up. If you if you would like to, you're more than welcome to. But it's because there's another recommendation I have that's going to come out of this episode. And if it's only one recommendation from Captain Eric, it's not going to be brute force. But I, I like that the, they used that footage here and in Patchy's kind of explanation as to why the prehistoric times are really cool. Before Potty has to come in and try to make the claim that the future is just objectively better. 
and that there's nothing cool about prehistoric times. Now, as they're arguing, we cut over to SpongeBob, and it's the only time that we actually see SpongeBob in this episode, other than, you know, maybe the intro and whatnot. Uh, but it's SpongeBob at the Krusty Krab having a bit of an existential crisis. And Mr. Krabs walks in to ask him what's going on. And SpongeBob has a strange feeling that a pirate and a parrot are arguing about him and that the parrot is winning. Which I, I guess is SpongeBob telling us that he thinks the future is a lot better than the prehistoric times. I mean, that's his opinion. But honestly, if it came down to the worlds of the Flintstones and the Jetsons, because they're the you know, only two properties that kind of coexist with one another that give us a, a look at a, a future and a, a past that you could, you know, go to. Between those two worlds, honestly, I'm going to the Flintstones. I, I'd rather go to the Flintstones than to go to the Jetsons. The Jetsons seems terrifying. How many people fall out of their homes on a daily basis? I, I have to imagine it happens more often than not. Um... Uh, and and honestly, with the way gas prices are looking these days, I, I don't want to know what they look like in the future. I'd rather go to the past where it seems like you still get uh, drivable cars that although you might have to start with your feet, you reach some speed with the car and it just goes off on its own. You could just lift your feet up. You're good to go. And and honestly, in the prehistoric times, no matter what the device is of, of modern day it seems like the Flintstones can find a prehistoric equivalent of it, so I, I'm I think I'm good to go. I don't I don't need to to deal with the uh, the Jetsons and their flying cars and the space travel, none of that. So SpongeBob can have that opinion of of preferring the future here, and uh, and certainly Potty can. But I don't know. I'm on Team Patchy with this argument. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Although I don't want to go to the actual real prehistoric past that versus the real future. I mean, if you're putting that argument up in front of me, I, I might have to might have to give a point to the future. I don't know. I don't want to deal with dinosaurs. I don't want to deal with uh, giant birds, giant fish, any of that stuff. I Any of that. I'd rather... It, we're talking cartoon worlds, Flintstones all the way. Real world, future. Uh, on to uh, Ugg. Onto the SpongeBob episode, you know, Patchy knows the argument really isn't going anywhere and decides, you know what, the viewers aren't here to watch him argue with his parrot, brings him over to the SpongeBob episode at hand. The opening of this episode is just fantastic. It's so beautiful. They cut through so many different parts of, of what prehistoric Bikini Bottom looks like. I mean, it's not a town like you're expecting, but it is overgrown with different varieties of plants that we've never seen before the designers had a field day coming up with what prehistoric bikini bottom would look like above water the sky has this reddish hue but underwater the sky is filled with this grayish greenish color that honestly if if this was the normal sky for all of the episodes it would look terrible but because we have a certain color palette that we're used to with bikini bottom when we can see it in this new lens, there's something about it. it. It just becomes beautiful in its own right here in this world. I love it. I absolutely love the design of this world. Um, we, we get some shots, and yes, you will notice some shots are reused from uh, the previous SpongeBob episode that dealt with prehistoric times, SB129, which uh, as far, I think, as, as the SpongeBob um, canon is concerned is is still in the timeline somewhere. I think even before the adventures of SpongeGar and PatGar, uh, th that whole like time period is is even before this, where there's just if you remember, there there wasn't even like open plains of Bikini Bottom where you can see sand. It was all overgrown forests, and the level of monsters and animals in there were just even more intense than what we see in this episode. It, it It's very much a scarier time that uh, Squidward found himself in in SB-129 than what we find ourselves in in this prehistoric episode. At least that's in my opinion. I don't know which one you would rather go to, but I'd rather deal with the open plains of uh, of this bikini bottom, this prehistoric bikini bottom, and, and deal with the inhabitants who, where they at least have some sort of dialect and can communicate in some way. There's an understanding 
of of communication whereas the the really prehistoric SpongeBob and Patrick that we see in SB129 were of a completely different communication level. They were more ape-like than the uh, sophistication levels of these cavemen that we're about to look into. Now, as the camera comes over through the prehistoric bikini bottom, which I just got to say is is more than worth uh, watching just for, for any of the art in this episode, we eventually make our way into what I believe is the prehistoric site of the future Conch Street, and we see the three homes of the main characters of this episode, Spongegar, Pattar, and Squog. Now, if you can guess, you know, who's who, it's Spongebob, Patrick, and Squidward. And as I've mentioned before, some of my favorite episodes of Spongebob Squarepants have been when the entire story takes place just completely on Con Street, when the characters just don't leave the domain of their homes or the front yard. Those are some of my favorite episodes when it's about just Spongebob and Patrick annoying Squidward, or in this case, Spongegar and Pattar annoying Squawk. I'm really into that. Um, now, we pretty much get that right off the bat as the morning starts. We don't have a normal alarm clock as you're used to. There's no boat alarm in Spongegar's uh, bedroom of sorts, which he still lives in a fruit. But it's not a pineapple, or if it is a pineapple, it's what a prehistoric-looking pineapple is. Um, that's all I can really say about it. It, it doesn't really have a, a design that, that points to any other known fruit. And this is prehistoric times, so maybe they just kind of took took their chance and said, you know what, maybe pineapples look like this back then. But uh, yeah, he doesn't have a traditional-looking alarm clock. What he has is a shelf above his head and a rock. A rock that is not a Dwayne Johnson, but a rock that is is designated to fall on his head after uh, some vibrations are supposed to happen early in the morning. Well, where are these vibrations going to happen? Very high up on the cliff, we see these like slug-looking creatures. There's a bunch of them that once the sun hits them, they emit a a howl, a a call that sounds very much like the boat horn of SpongeBob's alarm clock. So there's our there's our alarm clock stand in. The the vibrations of these howls then send the rock off of the shelf onto the face of SpongeGar, waking him up, who is, you know, angry at first as anyone would be being woken up like that, before he realizes that it was just his his alarm clock and 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 it's just completely adorable after he realizes what had happened and just kind of giggles to himself and puts the rock back up on the shelf and you know I, I'm a fan of SpongeGar. It's, it's really the one thing I, I might have said I'm not the biggest fan of this episode, but I am a big fan in the writing and design of SpongeGar. He is one of my favorite parts of this episode, as as he should be. He is the main character. Um, now, SpongeGar, I like how he takes his blanket and turns it into his square loincloth that also includes the very classic caveman look of the uh, of the one strap. But honestly, you might see the one strap and, and think of a caveman, but the first you know thing that comes to mind when I see that is Andre the Giant. But that's just me. Uh, SpongeGar, though, doesn't just have the one strap. He has a one-sleeve type deal, and it's a part of his design I absolutely love. Um, but a part of his design that I, I, I admit it's a part of what makes him adorable, um, but I... You know, I'm not too crazy about all the characters having this big old obvious like five o'clock shadow looking area of their face. And of course, it's meant to make you think of Fred Flintstone, that iconic five o'clock shadow he has as a part of his design, you know, has been a staple in, in designing cavemen for years. It's just what people connect with. And it's I, I love it on Squag. It really makes me laugh. The, the two tone on how his face works. Um, it, it comedically works on Squag the best, and I think as like the overall design, I, I do think it works on SpongeGar uh, the best in general, not, on a non-comedic sense. Uh, but all of their designs really come off great. They all have very classic, you know, caveman-esque looks. The the one eyebrow, the unibrow. They're very you know hairy in certain ways. And all of their clothing have have very, you know, once again, Fred Flintstone reminiscent esque like two tone designs where there's a base color and then some other patterns on top. I, I absolutely adore all of this. That That's what I came for. 
you know, when it comes to if you're telling me there's a prehistoric episode of SpongeBob, this level of design, seeing what Bikini Bottom looks like, this is the price of admission for me. This is what I'm paying for. So in terms of comedy, it might not be on the same levels as some previous episodes, but you got to remember this episode is SpongeBob BC before comedy. It's their get out of jail free card. It, you know, if you don't think this episode is that funny, well, it, why does it have to be funny? It's before comedy. The comedy wasn't invented yet, so it's nothing to be funny. But there, there's certainly some really good, good jokes here, including the fact that Squag is apparently sophisticated of a caveman enough to build in a walkway up to his Easter Island cave. I like. So what happens here is after SpongeGar wakes up. He brings his version of Gary out for a walk, which if you can imagine what a prehistoric snail looks like, it's massive with a bunch of spikes and big old eyebrows on him. But he, he looks super imposing, but he also seems as docile as the original Gary is or, you know, as docile unless you, you upset him. I imagine this Gary could get pretty upset if he if he feels threatened or uh, or gets really you know pissed off at somebody. But he's taking him for a walk and this giant snail is creating these giant streaks of slime everywhere he goes. And SpongeGar takes his Gary right over Squag's walkway up to his cave. And Squag is really upset about this. And that to me is incredibly funny. The fact that a caveman would have a walkway would, would get upset over, over slime and then start essentially an argument over it. An argument that really goes nowhere because SpongeGar still has to process most of the gibberish that is coming out of Squag's mouth. There are some words that you can connect to our language from some of the words that they are, are saying. Um, they, they use certain words uh, enough that you can piece together a bit of their caveman language. Um, like when SpongeGar comes out of his pineapple, he yells out "Banuga ready." So you can say that that's connected to "I'm ready." So this episode of of Banuga ready, a SpongePod Squarecast, is uh is brought to you by Prehistoric Times. Uh, Tabanga is come on. Uh, Palinka is brain. Dumbo is dumb. These are just some various uh, known connected meanings, but yeah, have some have some fun and see if you can come up with the uh, the caveman language throughout the SpongeBob episode. See if you can do it without cheating. If you can figure out most of the words of of what they're trying to trying to say in their language here. Um, so Squag comes out and confronts SpongeGar over all of this slime all over the floor. And as he, you know, eventually starts slipping all through the slime, SpongeGar is trying to trying to connect the pieces of why Squag is angry, and he's he's thinking about some of the words that Squag was using, and and Squag is probably the one of the three to use some pretty high level words that SpongeGar and Patar wouldn't be used to. While speaking of Patar, uh, Squag slides right into his rock, which opens it up and gives us our first look at Patar, who is very much the closest in acting to his uh, original appearance or the original prehistoric Patrick appearance from SB129. Uh, Patar is very more like an ape um, in his, his movements and, and a lot more grunting and, of course, just has a lesser IQ than the other characters. Uh, walks over to SpongeGar and they have their little kind of like introduction where they're uh, punching each other in the face and uh, maybe it's just their way of like a handshake or like a high five. It's just you walk up to a friend and you punch yourself in the face. Uh, I, I don't know if that would make a like if somebody did that to me, if if on my end that would make a friend. But I got to imagine there's people out there that if, if you did that to them, like if you ran up and punched yourself in the face. They might go, all right, hey, I trust this person. I don't know why, but I trust him. I'm going to make a friend out of him. Uh, for all the for all the gibberish that they're using, though, there is a point in this episode before Squag uh, is, approaches SpongeGar about the Gary slime where he says, wait a minute, to himself. And he, he thinks about uh, approaching Gary first and yelling at Gary and realizes, like, this giant creature is just going to beat me up. I love that they threw that in there. 
the fact that this caveman still knows wait a minute as a like that's still a word and there's no cave equivalent of it but uh squag eventually does get covered with a bunch of gary slime and it's just it's the usual for his lineage apparently where no matter what the squidward ancestry just gets dunked on by life you know they point out an injustice and then they just get dunked on some more that's just it that's all that happens Squidward's goal every day should be to ignore his instincts. His instincts tell him to get angry and frustrated and confrontational. And nine times out of ten, or 9.9 times out of ten, life ends up just, just dumping even more lemons on him after it's already done so for no reason. Uh, but after he gets slimed with a bunch of Gary's uh, excrement, uh, Pat Tar ends up taking a nice little sliver of that tries uh, tasting it, doesn't taste that good, and ends up pulling out a salt shaker to add some salt. Now, I appreciate that Pat Tar understands that salt makes pretty much everything taste better. Even even with some desserts, uh, salted caramel is better than regular caramel, in my opinion. So even in dessert, salt can intensify the experience. So I imagine, you know, if I, if I had to eat some of Gary's slime, one with salt, one without, I'd rather try the salt one. And Patar seems to agree. Uh, food is a necessity for these characters. Uh, they can't go to Bargain Mart and just grocery shop and come home with a week's worth of groceries. They can't go out to the Krusty Krab and buy a Krabby Patty. There's not really any accessible place for food, so they have to really scrounge for themselves. And that's what these characters do in this episode. But what ends up happening is the introduction of fire. Now, fire introduced in any prehistoric setting is an automatic plot. You know, what are you doing with that? What what comes up of this? You know, cavemen being introduced to the advent of fire is a is a classic storyline. But for these characters here, it goes beyond just having fire, having the warmth of the fire. Um, I mean, they're underwater. They're lucky to have it at all. It comes from the fact that when you heat things in fire, when you heat things up like like food, you burn things or you grill things, they end up tasting a, a, just lifetimes better than how they started. Um, now, I'm sure you can all think of one or two foods that when it's heated, it just tastes better than when it's cold. Uh, I can even think of a few things that just uh, right above a fire, like a grill, uh, meats. You don't want to eat meat raw, but if you grill it and you and you flame that thing up, hey, you, now you got good eating. Now you have something that's edible and it's not going to make you sick and not give you a, a visit from your your old friend Salmonella. Well, hello, ah, Salmonella. Now, without there being any dialogue, it's really hard for me to to go over this episode bit by bit. But what ends up happening is through some uh, inadvertently a rain dance from Patar, uh, it starts raining outside. And while they clap and notice that uh, apparently the atmosphere works like the clapper and turns on and off every time you clap, they start going nuts and inadvertently cause a thunder and lightning storm. Uh, which causes a bolt of lightning to come down and strike a piece of wood that's in front of them, igniting it and lighting a fire. Which up up to this point in the episode, they've really taken their time in in setting up. They've they've had their fun establishing the characters and and you know giving you a little bit of a taste of the setting and their everyday lives before kind of throwing this fire in their in their way. You can tell why this was going to be a two-part episode instead of just taking, you know, 12 minutes to tell a prehistoric episode. Um, while Squag is in his house, he apparently has gotten to the level of, of true cave paintings in which he has an easel and, uh, you know, and instead of just a wall, he has an actual, like, piece of, of stone that he's he's sketching on. And I love that if you look at his pad, they even drew in what is a prehistoric clarinet, uh, obviously leaned up against his wall. But I I cannot get over the fact that a caveman has a beret for painting. I, I Like, the walkway is one thing. I can understand the logistics of the walkway, but the fact that Squag has a, uh, has a beret here just... 
I like that to me is so funny. I just <laughs> might not be funny for you, but I, the fact that they added that in there made me laugh. Uh, he notices the fire outside and, and they're impressed overall over the heat of this thing. But it's not until they they unlock its true potential that that they are unaware of, of what's on their hands here, because after finding what appears to be, I think, some just like blooming flowers in the ground to eat, uh, SpongeGar accidentally trips and sends these two items into the fire, which the cavemen at this point have discovered hurts when you touch it. So now these these items that they were going to eat are now stuck in this fire that they can't just reach in their hands and, and grab these items for because they've already touched this fire and, and burnt their hands and it hurts. Now, now Squag knew right away that the uh, the pain was evident, but we get this nice prolonged scene of, of course, our dim-witted characters taking an excruciatingly long amount of time with their hands in that fire before realizing that there was pain involved. Um, now, Pat Tar immediately got to chewing on his his hand with a little bit of salt and then uh, and then wanted to do the same to Squags before getting smacked in the head with a, a stick. And Squag is yelling at Spongegar, who is is staring at the stick that Squag is holding, along with the the now ruined food that is in the fire. And he's putting the pieces together in his head of a new thought. And this entire sequence that happens here is very much a parody of a sequence from one of my favorite films, 2001, A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Movie was released on April 2nd, 1968. And let me tell you, if you are a, a film fan and you have not seen this movie, add it to your watch list. Look into the making of it. Look at the design of the movie. Look into the camera work, how how they got around some shots and um, and and dive into the film without really looking into it in terms of the plot, uh, because it's it's just a wild ride. And it certainly has some really out there sequences of the main character after he gets sucked into a black hole or any of the sequences around the monolith in the uh, in the movie, which has been parodied in, in countless other uh, animated properties. But here it's a parody of a specific part of the film, the Dawn of Man sequence. Um, and it's, it's which the, uh, in, in the movie, a group of apes learn to use a bone as both a weapon and a tool. And a lot of the same music beats and moments of that sequence are, are very heavily referenced here. And even down to the music being a direct homage to, uh, 2001, a space odyssey. Uh, it's one of my favorite sequences of this episode. And what's great is that even if you haven't seen 2001, if you've seen this episode and you know of the of these that sequence, when when those moments happen in the movie, you're just going to have a smile on your face going, oh, my goodness, they actually referenced this this heavily in SpongeBob. That's crazy. Uh, but once SpongeGar determines the, the thought process of taking the stick and then taking out the, the coral or or, you know, flowers or whatnot out of the fire, he has now reclaimed their food. And what's even better is the taste of this is apparently so over the moon for these characters that they now all go on a complete eating spree of various objects that they find put into the fire for what appears to be only a few seconds. But we all know it takes a little bit for, for those kind of effects to take place unless you're roasting marshmallows. But they're going through and eating whatever they can find. They are consuming almost everything around them because apparently everything, once you burn it, just tastes better. Now, I mentioned that earlier, but there are obviously some other things that would probably taste better uh, cold or at room temperature or raw without being cooked. But nope, they just want to cook literally the entire forest surrounding them before there's absolutely nothing left. And these characters are stoked about this. Now, we do have a uh, end of part one sequence before we do have to head back to Patchy to see how things are going, which certainly aren't better because now everything has turned into a competition between the prehistoric past and the futuristic future. And it seems like the, the future is kind of kicking butt here, um, which, it, it, once again, it's a bit unfair of Potty in this situation, um, especially in the fact that their their scoring system seems a bit off. So at first, uh, the, the first point, which goes to the prehistoric side, 
is brought up when uh, Patchy brings up the idea that you can create fire by using the friction of two sticks and that he's going to show you, you know, how to do that right then and there. Now, if you have watched any bit of Survivor Man, you will find that just picking up two sticks and rubbing them together like that is a pretty fruitless effort. You know, it, it can be done. You can create fire that way, but there are certain skills that you can add on top of that to make your job easier and also help you ignite a, a fire in a much more effective manner. I would certainly learn a little bit more about survival and, and how to start fires with uh, with two twigs instead of just grabbing two and rubbing them together like Patchy did here. But then the futuristic side comes in with another point uh, with the idea of lasers because laser beams exist. And yeah, that's that's pretty cool, and I got to give it to him. You know, that's that's an honest point for the future side. But then Patchy brings in a real-to-life caveman that he has found, apparently. This caveman is being played by none other than Bill Fagerbaki, who is Patrick Starr, if you haven't heard. So Tom Kenny, who ends up playing Patchy the Pirate, who is also SpongeBob, ends up bringing in his best friend, his best pal Patrick, Bill Fagerbaki, playing this caveman here, who does an absolutely fantastic job in this episode. He is one of the highlights for me in this episode. Just seeing him in live action, seeing him interact with with Tom, being there on set, and even his just portrayal as the caveman is pretty hilarious. To counteract this, Potty has now brought in a robot, a pretty impressive looking like Home Depot built robot, but it's certainly not a robot that's going to blow your socks off. But, you know, this robot still at least has laser beam uh, capabilities, which he ends up using on the caveman. And that's what sends the scoreboard off on a tangent, because with every laser beam hit, apparently that just counts as another point for the future. Uh, I know lasers are cool and I'm willing to give extra points for lasers, but do we really need to give the future an extra point for every single laser shot? I think that's a bit much. But uh, that that's the end of this interval here. We're on to part two of this uh, of this situation because the conflict really takes place when it comes to these characters now wanting to go to bed, wanting to leave for the day, and they don't know what to do with the fire. They have this one log that is on fire, that's been cooking all of their objects, all of the entire forest around them for the entire day. And now when it comes to wanting to take it home, they all want to claim the fire for themselves. You can understand this. You can understand the uh, the unease of, of something so important, something so vital, and, and something that you love like that, being in the care of other people, and you, know, you don't know what they're going to do with it or if they're going to ruin it. I would say best case scenario, just leave it outside for all these, you know, characters right in front of their homes. I mean, they all live right next to each other. They don't need to bring it inside to their houses, but they end up having a massive brawl over this fire and, and end up taking control of the log at various times. What's really funny is I love that Squawk at some point probably could have gotten away with this if it wasn't for the fact that he has a locked door on his cave and he had to take time to try to get the key out. So it's like, hey, man, it's I understand the the advent and usefulness of having a locked door on your house, but you, you can also see where it caused you a bit of an issue here. And I'm not saying that everybody, you know, should just have like an open door or something in case you're uh, trying to get something into your house. But, you know, uh, you're, you're a caveman guy. All right. Pump the brakes here on these on this technology. You can you can have no door or at least no locked door on your cave house and be completely fine. If it wasn't locked, he would have been able to get in and, and at least gotten away with it, but that didn't happen at all. He ends up getting caught, and, and the, uh, the brawl continues. Eventually, all three characters have a grasp on the log, on the fire, and it starts raining again, and the rain ends up taking the fire away, which, of course, angers Squag, uh, while the other characters cry over this matter. He, of course exudes in anger, pulls out that stick that he pulled out earlier to hit Pattar with, and before he can strike the characters, he ends up getting stricken by lightning himself, falling on the ground, burnt to a crisp, uh, a feeling that his future ancestor would certainly be used to. Um, and as he's laying there 
Uh, completely in burnt pain, Spongegar and Pattar move over to start roasting what appears to be some marshmallows over his body. And with that, the UG portion of SpongeBob BC comes to an end. That is the, the actual animated portion. And to comment on that portion on its own, it's absolutely adorable. I, I think they did well with the prehistoric setting. There was also a, a wonderful cameo I forgot to mention of, of the prehistoric version of Mr. Krabs in which the uh, instead of whereas Gary had a massive prehistoric ancestor, Mr. Krabs has an extremely tiny prehistoric ancestor who apparently can't stop saying the word money. Even though I can't imagine that little crab or any of his other, you know, family members have any idea what money is of that era. Uh, but it's one of the nice little touches of this episode. I, I really enjoy the the animated segment, but the entire episode as a whole is a bit of a slog because of the patchy and potty stuff. And you you would be surprised to to know that even with what comes up at the end doesn't change my opinion on this at all because as we wrap up with the patchy potty situation of of prehistoric versus the future patchy is distraught on his front stoop of his cave and is eventually comforted by potty who tells him to come back inside he's got a bit of a surprise for him and and patchy thinks it's immediately like oh you got rid of all the future stuff and i can finally have my caveman show and that's not the case what happens inside is yet another music video to end a spongebob special just like we got underwater sun as a part of the spongebob house party we got when worlds collide played here by the robot and the caveman who apparently went from attacking one another to uh becoming friends and making not only you know beautiful music with one another but also learned how to dance and did an entire sequence and created this entire a uh, musical number while Patchy was outside. It's pretty remarkable, I gotta say, that they were able to teach this caveman not only to sing, to talk, but to sing, play the drums, and then breakdance. It's it's a phenomenal amount of work here, and I gotta imagine it's maybe because of the future. So maybe they they are the objective better of the two here, but I don't know. Now, as far as the song is concerned... It's completely fine. Uh, I, I don't think it overstays its welcome at all at the end, and it's it's not anything that I would you know turn the channel away from these days, uh, but it is not a song that I play as much as I used to. Uh, if you were to ask me, you know, top 10 SpongeBob songs, I don't think this would make the top 10. That being said, I do think that this is an extremely fun way for the episode to end. I do enjoy... More of Bill Fagerbaki's Caveman and the interactions with the robot. I, I think it's an incredibly fun sequence to end on, and it's not just more pain for Patchy the Pirate. Uh, although, that ends up happening right after this uh, musical sequence because Patchy is confronted by a T-Rex at his door and ends up through a uh, running sequence that is very reminiscent of uh, Land of the Lost for me. I don't know if you've ever seen that uh, that show, the old Sid and Marty Croft show. And it's, uh, it's not a show I would tell you to watch for its quality, but it's got a level of charm that no matter how long it's been since and how how much the, the effects surrounding looks dated, but the charm of the shows of that time, the H&R Puff and stuff and the Land of the Lost, they, the, the charm just can't escape it no matter how long it's been and no matter how uh, dated those effects may look. But yeah, we, we get a Land of the Lost-inspired little moment here where Patchy gets chased by a T-Rex before the T-Rex ends up catching him in his mouth. And yeah, he seems to be okay, and we know we'll see Patchy again. It's probably all part of his show, but that's the end of this episode and the end of UG, the end of SpongeBob BC before comedy, and the end of SpongeBob Goes Prehistoric. And let me just tell you, I, I may have been a little, you know, maybe not as positive here and there in this episode, but make no mistake, I do legitimately love this episode. I, I do. I may have used like in the past, but uh, th this is one that does, you know, reach the love status. It's got a charm that doesn't escape it, just as I've mentioned with those other uh, Sid Marty Croft shows. Uh, the level of detail that they took 
with the character designs and the background elements just make this episode stand out on its own. And even with no dialogue, really, in the cartoon, other than the characters speaking gibberish to one another. And it's that level of visual comedy that can work where no matter where you are in the world, what language you're using, we can all watch an episode like this and enjoy it. It's that, like, Mr. Bean level of comedy where it doesn't even need to come from the words that are spoken, but from the actions that are used, even in the realm of like the Three Stooges. So uh, I I do love this episode. I I think it'll be interesting to see where it lands in my uh, my ranking at the end. I think it'll be on the lower end of the season. I I don't know it'll if it'll be the the ranked worst episode of season three. Which which by the way, when it comes to those episodes at the bottom, I would never technically use the word worst. Um, there just happens to have to be an episode that sits on a bottom of a ranking list. But I don't think this will be at the bottom of it, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. And with that, that's our time together aboard. Thank you for being a part of the Ready Crew. You can reach Captain Eric at spongepodpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at I'm Ready Podcast and on Instagram at SpongeBobPodcast. Please check out my other podcast, This Week in Nickelodeon History, dropping every Sunday on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to subscribe to the Captain Eric YouTube channel, and also make sure to hit that bell so that you can be notified whenever the captain puts something out. You can also purchase new and updated merch at the Redbubble link, either in the podcast description or in the link from any of my socials. Any funds that come from any of my projects go right back into my projects, and it's always appreciated from the captain. Don't forget to check out the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, Rehydrated. The link for that YouTube channel will be in this episode description. So if you're even listening to this and it's beyond May 1st, 2022, then that movie should be out. You can check it out. I play a couple of roles in the movie. I want you to see if you can find all of them. I've already publicly announced that I am Captain Bart, the uh, captain at the beginning of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. It was an absolute blast recording those lines, and it's going to be an, a, a wild ride to see that thing finally play out in front of all of your eyes so make sure you check that out thank you so much as always please stay safe be kind to one another and come aboard again to another episode of i'm ready a SpongePod squarecast spongebob what's wrong i don't know mr krabs but i've got the strangest feeling that somewhere a pirate and parrot are arguing about me and the parrot is winning. 